Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This is the second episode in our series, Energy Transition Projects in Asia-Pacific, focusing on wind projects. I'm Christian Maley. I'm counsel at Clifford Chance, working on major energy resources and infrastructure projects in Asia-Pacific. And I'm Michella Stokel. I'm counsel in our projects group based in Singapore, focusing on clean energy projects across the APAC region. And I'm Robert Tang. Council in Clever Chance's Sydney office, specialising in commercial litigation and international arbitration with a focus on energy, infrastructure and renewables. Thanks, Marcella and Rob. Last time we looked at the current state of play for wind in the region and trends for project structuring. Today we're rolling up our sleeves and donning the high vis as we turn to the construction phase to look at some key risks and pitfalls to be aware of and, of course, what can be done to mitigate them. Marcella, in our previous episode, you mentioned that very generally contractors will prefer a uh, disaggregated project structure and developers would ideally like a consolidated approach like a single EPC contract. What are some of the risks and disadvantages that developers face with a disaggregated approach? Thanks, Christian. That's correct. So if we think about the offshore wind sector, a sector that's historically been dominated by disaggregated procurement structures, Disaggregation as a risk tends to bite in two ways. The first is interface or friction risk, as I like to call it. And the second is recourse risk. And the key message is neither of these risks can really be overcome through the individual contract terms. So, for example, on the interface side, you might see integration challenges, so design coordination issues, the risk of knock-on changes across other packages due to unplanned changes, impacting other packages later in the sequence, including during the detailed design phase. You might see the increased risk of cross-blaming between contractors, so making enforcement more challenging on a forensic basis. You could also be seeing physical site coordination challenges, sharing port and storage facility access, you know, damage to completed work during installation, the risk of uncompensated delays under later packages due to delays under earlier packages. And an interesting trend which we're currently seeing is the risk of increased leverage for earlier contractors in the supply chain asking for price adjustments because they know they have that leverage across the sponsors. And then on the recourse side, it's really the obvious risk of having lower recourse against each individual contractor in real terms. So I mean, because LD rates and caps on liabilities will all be based on lower individual package prices in each contract. And what can be done to mitigate these risks? There are sort of four ways in terms of how we see disaggregation mitigated. Um, the first three are really primarily technical. So it's the execution experience of the sponsors or developers. Uh, it's the track record of the contractors, so selecting capable contractors with realistic execution plans and resourcing expe expectations. And an incredible amount of technical due diligence is done in that particular area. It's schedule buffers between the packages and cost contingencies to mitigate in sort of time and financial terms some of those risks I just went through at the beginning. And then finally, of course, it's interfacing provisions in each contract that you'll be familiar with. So coordination obligations, interface matrices, cross-package information review mechanisms, milestone LDs, and the list goes on. 
However, the key message is the protection offered by contractual mechanisms is limited. Even in our experience where we see the best market terms obtained, the better mitigation for disaggregated procurement structures is always technical, primarily that technical assessment of schedule buffers and cost contingencies. Thanks, Marcella. Staying on the pre-construction project phase, aside from assembling the contractors and the suppliers, another critical aspect for onshore wind is assembling the land tenure. And there's a potential trap here in firing the starting gun on construction too early before tenure and access are fully secure. Understandably, the developer will be very keen to get things going on site, but if the contractor mobilizes to site before tenure and access are fully wrapped up, there's a risk of having the contractor sitting on site without any work to do. Now, the costs of all those people and equipment sitting on site without any work can quickly add up, and depending on the contractual framework, those costs could sit with the developer, the contractor, or the subcontractor. There's clearly a potential for disputes if that's not been clearly allocated between the parties at the outset. So this is something that definitely deserves some attention at the tendering stage. Another risk that comes to mind, Christian, relates relating to the pre-construction project phase is to do with landowners. And so there's two risks that spring to mind. The first relates to uh, the issue of leases entered into with landowners. Uh, in terms of those leases, it's quite important to make sure that the terms of those leases are clear and unambiguous. Um, one example that comes to mind um, in relation to a dispute a number of years ago that I was working on relates to the definition of the word property. Um, in terms of that particular issue, the definition wasn't well set out and it led to the landowner making some ambitious arguments about property, including things like trees and how the, dem the demolition of certain trees amounted to some very high sums of money ranging between one to five million dollars each and so what that highlights to me is that it's quite important to make sure that when when you go through the the lease with the landowner terms are defined clearly in terms of what's meant to be captured by that term and what is not and to the extent issues like property for example um, are meant to be included in the contract, it's quite important to, to set out what would be the impact or compensation payable to the landowner if the property is affected by the particular construction works. The other issue that springs to mind relates to the recent decision um, handed down by the Supreme Court of Victoria last year in the case of urine versus Bold Hill. In that case, the court awarded damages for the loss of amenity to the landowners and injuncted the Bold Hills wind farm from emitting noise at night. And what was interesting about that case is that the Supreme Court held that even if Bold Hills had established that they had complied with the relevant noise conditions on the planning permit, that compliance does not necessarily mean that the wind farm's noise levels were reasonable as a matter of tort. No appeal was lodged against that decision, so for now that decision remains good law in Victoria. And we're also seeing a similar noise nuisance lawsuit currently before the Supreme Court of Queensland in relation to the Mount Emerald wind farm. So it'll be quite interesting to see how the Queensland Court reacts or adopts the decision from the Victorian Supreme Court and whether that approach will be followed. One of the other key interface issues is around equipment risk. And Rob, I know you've helped um, some of our clients 
with these issues on a few projects. What kind of scenarios are we talking about here in terms of equipment risk? That's a great question, Christian. In terms of equipment risk, there is a potential for disputes to arise between the OEM, which manufactures the equipment, the construction contractor who installs the equipment, the maintenance contractor who is maintaining the equipment, and ultimately the owner. Now, that potential for dispute is more acute in the disaggregated procurement model structure that Marcella touched upon earlier. What this leads to is putting the principal in a place of limbo where they're faced with reduced power generation and a multifaceted dispute, which could take a lengthy period of time to resolve. And so what's ideally required in that scenario is to front load the issue so that the risk can be mitigated. Practically, it's important to have a set of contracts which clearly outlines the responsibilities of each of the parties without gaps or overlaps in obligations. Now, I appreciate that contracts might need to be drafted and negotiated at a different point in time, but it is very important, especially for principals, to ensure that the gaps or overlaps in those obligations are avoided. So we've been talking here about interfaces in terms of the interactions between the, the contractor the, and the developer, uh, but there is another important interface uh, for any wind project, and that is its grid connection, Rob. Thanks, Christian. In terms of connection risk, I agree, it is a significant issue. And that issue commonly arises during the registration and commissioning phase. And here, the generator and the component equipment will need to comply with the agreed generator performance standards, as well as some of the other applicable connection and licensing requirements set by AEMO. So just last month, for example, there was extensive media coverage discussing Australia's largest wind precinct being hit by connection delays and the associated cost blowouts. Now, these connection risks place pressure on all parties involved. For, for contractors, they're faced with potential LDs under the construction contract. And for principals, delays in connections, particularly extensive delays, could also jeopardise financing arrangements. There are a number of ways to practically mitigate the risk of a dispute in the case of a connection risk. For principals, one practical way would be to work with a contractor who has experience with connections and who understands the requirements of regulators. And for contractors, one practical way would be to negotiate an LDs provision that provides an equitable risk allocation with the principal. Christian, I know your team does a lot of work around regulatory and investment risk. For projects jurisdictions that are perhaps less stable from a legal or political perspective, is there anything that the wind sector should be thinking about as well? It's a great question, Marcella. Wind and other renewables are a sector that's inherently vulnerable to regulatory change. And a great example of that is changes to feed-in tariffs. We've seen a lot of discussion and activity in Taiwan at the moment about potential reductions in feed-in tariffs for wind projects there. Depending on the extent of a change to feed-in tariffs, this can obviously potentially undermine a project's entire business case and viability. So it's a significant risk there for a developer that's going into a jurisdiction and effectively taking a bet that the feed-in tariffs or some other aspect of the regulatory regime is going to remain stable. It's also something to consider for projects in countries where perhaps the legal or political situation is less stable or perhaps the offshore wind sector is less mature. 
So what can be done? One of the key practical steps that developers and contractors can take when moving into an international jurisdiction is to structure their role in the project in a way that takes advantage of the protections under bilateral investment treaties. So this might involve, for example, setting up a local operation through a third jurisdiction to make sure it's covered by the treaty protections. A good example of the protections that these me mechanisms can give is uh, what we've seen in Spain on their changes to solar feed-in tariffs in recent years. A number of developers have brought claims under international investment treaties, uh, claiming for um, the loss of viability of their projects and for damages based on changes to the solar feed-in tariffs that were made after um, they made their investment. So it's, it's something that needs to be considered up front, and it's certainly um, something worthwhile uh, for developers and contractors to turn their minds to when moving into a new jurisdiction. So this all sounds perhaps a little bit negative, so I, I thought it might be good to end on a bit of a high note. Martella and Rob, just thinking about um, offshore wind in Asia Pacific, what are you excited about? I might go first, Rob. I'm most excited about floating offshore wind, essentially that ability to unlock new offshore wind markets, I think is really fascinating. It will be the scale of opportunity um, that will be such an important part of the future energy mix since most of the offshore wind potential is actually found in water depths where the traditional fixed bottom turbine structures can't go. And interestingly, as a firm, this is something we're also actively involved in that transition from the small scale demonstrated commercial projects to some of the early commercial scale project rollouts. So stay tuned. Thanks, Marcella. I also agree with you in terms of the offshore wind opportunities that Australia might be able to explore. Um, I'm particularly excited about the fact that the Australian government had uh, indicated that they want to target 82% renewables by 2030, and that currently we're behind the required run rate to get this. I'm hopeful that with the recent declaration of the Gippsland and Hunter offshore wind zones, Australia will be able to achieve that target or come close to it. Well, there's plenty to be excited about offshore. I'm going to say I'm excited about um, the prospects for onshore wind along the west coast of Australia. After many years where we've seen pretty limited action on, on a, a regional scale, uh, we're now seeing really serious commitment and investment by both um, governments and industry, including the major resources companies, which is so important to the economy in Western Australia. So I think this is a great um, growth area for the years to come. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.